Funding for Here and Now Anytime comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Hi, this is Here and Now Anytime, where we give you a little news, a little something you weren't expecting, and always a fresh, in-depth perspective on current events, arts and culture, and stories that matter. Subscribe or follow to get all our episodes out every weekday. And if you like what you hear, tell a friend about us to help spread the word. Now here's the show. As long as I'm living and breathing, I'm going to have to kick butt. Not violently, of course. Bernice King on the legacy of her father, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., and the message of peace in a violent world. It's Monday, January 15th, and this is Here and Now, Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and later on the show, we're going to hear from MLK's daughter, Bernice A. King, who runs the King Center in Atlanta. Also, an expert on Yemen evaluates the dangerous moment we're in as the U.S. and Iran-backed Houthi rebels lob missiles at each other off the Arabian Peninsula. The U.S. and Iran don't want to end up in a war with one another. I think the concern here, though, is that we could see a dynamic where escalation kind of spirals out of control. But first, it's cold in Iowa. The Hawkeye State is more like the ice planet Hoth today. And unfortunately for the Republican presidential candidates who are not named Donald Trump, it's going to take a lot more than lukewarm support to overcome a forecast of wind chills between minus 20 and minus 30 tonight. Still, former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis are hoping for some kind of respectable showing in what's by all accounts a race for second place. Reporter Clay Masters has been following them all, and he spoke this afternoon to Robin Young. Well, let's talk about two things we're feeling. Number one, the weather. It is really cold. I mean, I I grew up in the Midwest across the border of Iowa and Nebraska. We're used to cold, but this is a a new level. Very, very cold. Uh, Mm -hmm. You walk outside and it just kind of hits you, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And the mood right now, you know, I've I've been at a couple events for DeSantis and Haley in the last couple of days. Uh, A lot of the folks that are showing up are, are decided or they're volunteering, but you still find people like the last two caucus cycles I covered who are still trying to make up their minds. So Hmm. there's a lot of uh, kind of a foregone conclusion feeling that the former president has it in the bag. But the one thing almost every Republican caucus goer has in common when I talk to them over the last few months is that they say don't believe the polls. So, you know, we'll we'll find out more tonight. Everybody's eager to find out more. Okay, well, let's get right to that. Let's hear from some Iowa voters. Um, There's Tom Donnelly. He spoke to ABC News. He supports Trump. I do think change is required. I do think it's going to take a monumental force. I don't think compromise is the answer. Everybody says we want to bring the country together. Frankly, I'm not interested in being on the far left. I'm not interested in going that direction. So, Clay, does that square with what you're hearing? It sounds like I I don't want to bring the country together. It's too far to the left. I don't want to go over there. 
Yeah, I mean, the the people who are supporting the former president, it, he's got a lot of baked-in support here, obviously, because he was president before. You remember eight years ago, uh, Ted Cruz, the senator from mm-hmm. Texas, actually won the Iowa caucuses because for the better part of 2015, there were a lot of people still questioning the credibility of, of Trump's first bid for the White House. And so there's a, there's a lot of uh, interest from people who supported the former president eight years ago, supported him, voted for him several times now to see him back in the White House. And, you know, one thing that the Trump campaign is doing a lot better this time around than they did eight years ago was there's just much more uh, of, of, a, of an organization in the state. Uh, eight years ago was nothing compared mm-hmm. to what we're seeing this right. time around where, you know, you show up to the caucus and there are video or you show up to the rallies where Trump is speaking and there are videos explaining how caucuses actually work. Because remember, a caucus is not an election where you just show up in your convenience and vote. Caucus goers have to be present at 7 p.m. tonight, right. and it can take a little while to get right. the caucus done. They have to hear all the speakers. And and I want to get uh, uh, all the candidate supporters in. So here's Liz Lee, also on ABC. She supports Haley. She's smart. She's strong. I think um, she's got great um, background as governor of South Carolina and UN ambassador. And so, Clay, briefly, what else are you hearing Haley's people say? A lot of the people that I talk to from from Haley supporters are saying, you know, we want somebody that can bring the country together, a little different than the voter that you heard talking about, the former president, bring the country together, move past the divisiveness. And that kind of squares up with what Haley is saying on the campaign trail. A lot of her messages, you know, we can't return to the chaos that we had under the former president. She says that he was the right president at the right time, but it's time to move on. And she regularly says the country can't survive another term of Trump in the White House. Yeah. You also spoke with Ron. DeSantis supporter, Scott Richardson. Uh, This was at a Haley event in Ames. Uh, He spoke about the issue that's important to him. The economy for sure. I'm looking at retirement in the next 10 years. So I would like to um, have something there that I can count on. Well, and his wife is still trying to make up her mind. But interesting, he cites DeSantis on the economy, not on his faith. And just briefly, could you talk, Clay, in the minute we have, about that huge block of evangelical voters? Yeah, evangelical Christians take up an outsized uh, role in the Republican uh, electorate going into the caucuses. Uh, You think about the last several cycles, Mike Huckabee, Rick Santorum, and Ted Cruz were able to really captivate that evangelical vote to put them on to, uh, you know, winning the Iowa caucuses in those respective years. Uh, But we're not talking about a President Cruz, a President Santorum, Mm -hmm. or a a President Mm -hmm. Huckabee. Of course, uh, evangelical voters have glommed on to the former president. He has a lot of support from them this time around. And so, yeah, the evangelical vote, the traditions of the Iowa caucuses of the past, we talked about Ron DeSantis. He's hit all of Iowa's 99 counties, has some big endorsements in the state, but this is going to be a real test as to whether or not that kind of traditional campaign that DeSantis is is waging is going to do anything. If, if he finishes a distant second or even a distant third, we'll be wondering what will happen next with his yeah. campaign. Clay Masters, longtime Iowa reporter, also senior politics reporter for Minnesota Public Radio. This is a big day in, in Iowa, Clay, so we wish you all the best. Hope everybody stays safe. All right. Thanks so much, Robin. By the way, NPR has a live blog going tonight. If you want to follow the results, check it out at npr.org. And make sure you keep up with this podcast for only the best and most essential political coverage this election season. Subscribe to or follow Here and Now Anytime wherever you listen to this show, if you haven't already. 
Coming up next, we'll turn our attention to the Middle East, where U.S. airstrikes in Yemen are further widening a regional conflict that's already been crossing borders and snarling international trade for months. It's also all the more reason why, as we'll hear, many Americans are calling on the Biden administration to put an end to Israel's assault on Gaza. Deepa Fernandez has more after the break. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit teledochealth.com slash what's your why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C health slash what's your why. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. Tensions in the Middle East were high this weekend. Israel's war in Gaza entered its 100th day, and the U.S. shot down a missile fired at a U.S. Navy ship. The missile came from an area in Yemen controlled by Houthi rebels who were backed by Iran. It's thought to have been in response to a barrage of missiles fired at Houthi targets by the U.S. and its allies last week. For two months now, Houthi rebels have been attacking merchant ships off the coast of the Arabian Peninsula. The New York Times put it this way yesterday, the war in the Middle East has widened. Alexandra Stark is Associate Policy Researcher at the Rand Corporation and author of the forthcoming book, The Yemen Model. Alexandra, welcome to Here and Now. Thanks so much for having me. Do you agree, Alexandra, that the war has widened? And, and if so, what's your greatest concern? I think we're we're at a potentially dangerous moment in in this conflict right now where we could see potentially different trajectories moving forward. Um actors across the region in in Yemen, in in Lebanon, Iraq, Syria are already involved. So in that sense we are already in a wider conflict. Um but at the same time up until now we've also seen both the United States and Iran show um some restraint in the specific sense that I think neither one wants to become directly involved in the war. Um, and, and the U.S. and Iran don't want to end up in a war with one another. I think the concern here, though, is that we could see a dynamic where escalation kind of spirals out of control. Hmm. So you wrote a piece, and, and this was before the, the, the U.S. attacks. You wrote a piece for foreign affairs titled Don't Bomb the Houthis. Make your case. The bombings are continuing. Why won't the U.S. bombing the Houthis achieve an end to the Houthi attacks? So uh, I think there are two issues here. The first is that the Houthis have framed their attacks as a response to the conflict in Gaza, as support for the Palestinian people. That has won them a lot of support, frankly, um, within Yemen, across the region. Uh, part of the Houthi slogan is death to America, death to Israel. And so these U.S. and U.K. strikes actually um, kind of perversely can give the Houthis an opportunity to to essentially burnish their ideological street cred. 
Um, mm. The second issue is that I don't think the strikes will be able to significantly erode the Houthis' ability to continue these attacks. The Houthis have been fighting an insurgency campaign for, for two decades now, and that's made them really good at you know, having weapons and forces that are easy to hide and to disperse. So tell us then, Alexandra, how a diplomatic approach might work. Well, the, the Biden administration has already started down this road in, in some senses. They uh, got together a multinational coalition to try to protect uh, ships in the Red Sea and um, push through a UN Security Council resolution. Um, ultimately, I think it's, it's just a really tough question of how to address this problem. And unfortunately, there just aren't many good options here. It's kind of about choosing the least bad option. I think the the best option in that sense is to continue these the maritime operations um, and, and ultimately to engage in a diplomatic process that's trying to find a solution to the wars in Gaza and in Yemen. And I would just say that's a really tall order. These are famously very intractable problems, mm. but it's not one of those situations where there's going to be a, a quick fix, I don't think. You know... It adds, I've read, 10 days to the shipping route if you don't go through the Red Sea. Why not maybe just divert traffic, add 10 days to the shipping route, but stay away from that area altogether, hence taking away the ability to bomb ships and and make the political point that the Houthis are trying to? The issue is that uh, diverting ships away from the Red Sea and from the Suez Canal adds costs to that as well. And those are ultimately costs that are passed on uh, to consumers in terms of higher prices. So I think from the perspective of global trade, that would be the issue. And I think from from the U.S. perspective, there's a sense of um, wanting to keep the seas open for, for commercial trade and okay. navigation. That's kind of fundamental to U.S. interests. And, and what is the end game here, the goal for the U.S. and its partners? Is it to eliminate the Houthis, to work with them on some level maybe? Yeah, it's it's like I said, it's a really tough question. And I think the, the choices and that uh, all of these actors have made over the past couple of decades have kind of, kind of brought us to this point with the Houthis where they have been able to gain really substantial influence um, in Yemen and, and to control a lot of, of territory and, and the majority of the population there. So I think actors are increasingly realizing um, that there isn't a military solution for this problem and it's ultimately going to be about focused on negotiations. There is a UN-led process for negotiations in, in the conflict in Yemen, the war in Yemen itself, uh, and hopefully, um, I mean, we'll see uh, after these recent events, but hopefully that will continue and um, that could could help to tamp down some of these tensions. And tell us what it is the Houthis want. They're, they're you know, saying they want an end to the the siege on Gaza. They, I'm wondering how much support they have inside of Yemen, But but do you think that if the U.S. stepped up its pressure on Israel to stop, that might stop the Houthi attacks? Yes, uh, the Houthis have linked their their attacks to the conflict in Gaza, to de-escalation there, and, and to humanitarian aid. I think if we, if we do see some kind of solution for the conflict in Gaza, then we would likely see a decrease in the Houthi attacks. But 
unfortunately, I think the Houthis have also kind of realized that this is an important source of leverage for them and that they can use these really kind of low, low cost, low technology weapons, things like, you know, small boats that they've used to try to hijack ships, for example. Um, and those are really difficult attacks to prevent against. And just finally, how, how does this end, Alexandra? That's a great question. I don't think anyone knows right now. I think the the best hope is that uh, we don't see that escalatory dynamic and that uh, ultimately we're able to find some kind of sustainable solution for these conflicts, the conflict in Gaza that could tamp down uh, a lot of these tensions. But you know, ultimately, these actors that are allied with uh, Iran, the Houthis uh, and others, have showed that they have significant capabilities and, and leverage over the international community. So it's, it's going to be a really tough problem moving forward. Alexandra Stark is Associate Policy Researcher at the RAND Corporation. Thank you so much, Alexandra. Thanks for having me. Hundreds of thousands of protesters across the world gathered in major cities this weekend to demand a ceasefire in Gaza. In Washington, D.C., the streets were flooded with voices supporting Palestinians. Demonstrators were united in their anger over Israel's airstrikes against Gaza and demanded the United States stop sending aid and weapons to support the war. According to Palestinian health authorities in Gaza, Israel's bombs have killed more than 24,000 Palestinians since the war began. Joining me is Sibel Mays-Osterman, breaking news reporter with USA Today and was at the protest in D.C. Sibel, welcome. Thank you. This was a really diverse crowd, people coming from all over the country, even from Canada, to protest. Tell us about who was there. Yeah, so the the plaza, Freedom Plaza in downtown Washington was absolutely crowded with people. I spoke to people from across the country, some people who had flown, in fact, all the way from California to take part in the march. And uh, the plaza was just covered in red and green flags, people wearing traditional black and white Palestinian scarves and holding signs with messages like in the war on Gaza or ceasefire now. And I understand that some of the people at the protest had lost family members to Israel's airstrikes on Gaza. What stories did they share? Yeah, so the crowd heard from a number of Palestinian Americans that spoke about the toll that the conflict in Gaza had had on their families. Uh, There was one speaker, a doctor from Michigan, who said that he had lost more than 100 family members, including 60 children, uh, to these Israeli military strikes. He told a story about his brother, who was actually killed as he tried to evacuate to southern Gaza with his pregnant wife and children. And he said to the crowd that the blood of his family was on President Biden's hands. There were a number of Jewish demonstrators at the protest as well, calling for a ceasefire. What did they tell you about their reasons for turning out? Yeah, I spoke to one 25-year-old Jewish marcher who told me that he felt that he had a unique debt, actually, to demonstrate in solidarity with Palestinians right now. He said that his perspective on the conflict had changed when he went on several trips to Israel sponsored by the Miami Jewish community. And he told me he believes that a ceasefire in Gaza and a path towards Palestinian statehood are in fact also in the best interest of the Jewish people. And that was in part why he was there. 
Okay. You you mentioned also, you know, many of the protesters, signs, protesters, speakers calling out the Biden administration, President Biden directly for the U.S. role, um, support here of Israel. You know, the Houthis have been launching missiles at ships in the Red Sea in retaliation for Israel's war in Gaza. Was that talked about? Yeah, absolutely. I actually uh, talked to a couple of marchers who said that those strikes were a big motivating factor for why they were at the march. One of them was holding a sign, in fact, that said, Houthis are heroes. And she said that she felt that uh, the Houthi rebels were the only ones in the region that were standing up for the people in Gaza. Another marcher that she was there with told me that she was disappointed and angry with President Biden's decision to launch those strikes on Houthi targets. President Biden facing harsh criticism for the support of Israel during this war. Some protesters even accusing him of enabling genocide. I saw signs that called him Genocide Joe. Did you get a sense from those attending the march that Biden's actions may have cost him their support in the 2024 election? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I saw many holding up signs, starting chants, criticizing him. And I spoke with two nurses from California who said that they had come all the way across the country to join this march. They said the barrage of disturbing photos, videos of the devastation in Gaza had had a really deep impact on them. And they told me that they could not vote for any candidate who had not spoken out for a ceasefire. And and just finally, Sibel, you know, the, the, the D.C. march happened, you know, it was a global day. D.C. was kind of on the last part of that around the world. Were, were marches there aware of, of the many hundreds of thousands around the world that came out? Yes, absolutely. There was definitely a feeling of solidarity protesting um, at the same time as people around the world as a global movement. Sibel Mays-Osterman, breaking news reporter with USA Today. Thanks, Sibel. Thank you so much. Well, another voice speaking out against the war is that of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr.'s daughter, Bernice. After the break, we'll hear a little more about why she says her father's message of nonviolence is needed today. Stick around. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, an automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares why Betterment believes cash can be a strategic choice. There are times when the market is volatile, when customers are a little nervous about investing. We came to understand that there was an opportunity to introduce cash as part of an investing strategy and to give back yields to the customer. Learn more about high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance not guaranteed. Cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. In this country, some truths aren't self-evident. 
in NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as wide-ranging and real as the people who tell them. We celebrate the Black experience for all its soul and richness. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts. MLK's daughter, Bernice A. King, says the teachings of her father are more important than ever, with conflicts raging around the world. The King Center in Atlanta organized events for what would have been MLK's 95th birthday today. And WABE's Julian Virgin spoke with Bernice King ahead of the holiday and has this story. The vitriol, the the extreme um, divisiveness, the wars that are happening, the the genocide that's happening around our our world. And I'm not going to be afraid to say that word. We should not be afraid to say that word. King made her comments as fighting raged in the Middle East, Ukraine and Sudan. Her remarks come after South Africa charged Israel with genocide at the International Court of Justice, a charge Israel has rejected. We have to be truthful about what's happening uh, to people across this world. At 60, King has experienced plenty. She was five when her father was assassinated and still gets sad and angry over the same issues for which he advocated. Yet, in spirit of her father, she tells us she's not discouraged. I don't let those things take root, that they hinder me or or restrict me. I feel it, process through it, and then say, as long as I'm living and breathing, I'm going to have to kick butt. Not violently, of course. This year marks the 39th annual National King Holiday. For the King Center, this year's theme is It Starts With Me, shifting the cultural climate through the study and practice of Kingian nonviolence. What does the holiday need to look like? What is the meaning of it? What are the things we do? What are the things that shouldn't happen? Those were the intentional questions that were asked by our mother, Coretta Scott King, during the development of the holiday. She wanted a day of service rather than corporate retail. In Atlanta... From City Hall to those stopped on the street, they were echoes of King's vision. Theodos Pace, a deputy to the mayor, says he views the holiday as a day on, not a day off. Always try to leave whatever you do in a better place than you found it. um, And really try to reach back and help others that, you know, are in need of assistance. Phyllis Watson believes Martin Luther King Jr.'s teachings hold more value now than ever, even though there are those who try to ignore them. But they're still relevant and they're rooted in our faith, our citizenship, our real Americanism. Bernice King says now is the time to focus on specific issues within, whether it's indifference or evil, to affect change. So that's why we have to really study to figure out how do you break all of that and uh, create the kind of world we all want to live in and coexist in. The King Week of Action concludes with a commemorative service, march, and rally today. WABE's Julian Virgin in Atlanta. That's our show. Here and Now Anytime comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. Today's stories were produced by Jill Ryan, Lynn Menegon, and Koyani Saxena. Today's editors were Todd Munt, Peter O'Dowd, Kat Welch, and Chico Theory technical direction from Mike Moschetto and Caleb Green. Mike Moschetto also wrote our theme music, along with Max Liebman and me, Chris Bentley. Our digital producers are Allison Hagen and Grace Griffin, and the executive producer of Here and Now is Carleen Watson. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with you tomorrow. 
This message comes from NPR sponsor, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure. AI may be the most important new computer technology ever, but AI needs a lot of processing speed, and that gets expensive fast. Upgrade to the next generation of the cloud, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure. OCI is the single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. Do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic. Take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me. And I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. 